Welcome back to the podcast. I have Jaylene Bidlin, who is the proprietor of Jaylene's Alaska uh, Private Whale Tours in Juneau, Alaska. Thanks for being on here. Awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jeff. This is quite the privilege. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So you have, it's Jaylene's Alaska and you do private whale tours. Uh, how many yeah. boats do you have? So right now we have two. Um, both are um, six passenger, I like to call them my local vessels. Like the goal is to try to stay as local as possible while still offering um, tourism um, out of Juneau. And so um, basically they're the same boats that you can see a lot of locals operating here in Southeast. So we've got a Hughes Craft and we've got a Raider, um, both very comfortable for six passengers. Are those the 26 footers? Yeah, sorry. Oh, those things, those but, things yeah. are so nice. I had a well, my wife and I had a twenty-one foot North River. It was oh, a ragtop, and it was a great boat, but the the canvas was getting a little bit old, and we sold yeah. it to help buy a house. And so now yeah. it, it just seems like <laughs> everyone had these new, brand new Hughes crafts are just beautiful, and oh gosh. But uh, yes, I'm jealous. They're gorgeous. Yeah. I, well, I joke so. Uh, I started Jaylene's Alaska when I was 22, right out of college. Um, and I had no money. <laughs> it was financed uh, by uh, family members who decided to trust me with their money <laughs> for a while. <laughs> like it was a uh, hodgepodge together. Um, and then uh, my I met my husband after starting uh, the business and being the brat that I am was like, well, if you want to be with me, you're going to have to be in Juno because I already started a business. And so, nice. <laughs> um, and so he came and uh, obviously put up with me. But anyway, so long story short, I joked for a long time and it was true. We didn't have a house. We didn't have a home. We had boats, you know, Ooh. and it's very, very similar to like a lot of other people's stories because boats are so expensive, especially the, 26 foot aluminum boats that I was looking for for tours. And so my husband and I during COVID ended up building our own home, like a 550 square foot tiny home on a piece of property in Juneau. And we lived in a camper nice. for the last two years. And it was so true. It was like, we, we had boats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't have a house. <laughs> yeah. That's such a, if you end up being house poor anywhere, it's not great. But if you're house poor in Alaska, it's, you got to have some sort of toy. You got to have the boat. You got to have, yeah. you know, something because, <laughs> I mean, the road system is great and you can get to a lot of cool stuff, especially in Juneau. You got your, uh, you yeah. got your glacier and you got your fat tire biking and you got your touring and skiing and all yeah. that stuff. But man, it's, if you're stuck at home, enjoying the paint, enjoying your expensive furniture, I, I don't know, there's warmer places to live. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I completely, I completely agree. And it was obviously by choice and we knew what we were going to get into with all that, but it was, um, (laughs) I think that it's almost like a rite of passage, um, in Alaska to live in some sort of weird, like dry cabin, cabin boat, like camper tent, something just like to (laughs) make ends meet. I was, a lot of my family has anyways. I have a big family that is rooted here in Southeast. And they all have stories of living on a 17-foot sailboat or in a camper or cabin at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. So you must have never really been intimidated b- about driving boats, docking boats, or anything like that if you grew up around them. 
Yeah, it was not really an intimidation thing for me. And uh, hiring and training captains in that position, I need to remind myself that not everyone had the luxury of being thrown in a boat at a young age <laughs> and, and remind myself um, to have patience. But uh, so I grew up on Shelter Island, just outside of Juneau. So um, there, it's completely off the grid out there, although there's a lot of cabins out on Shelter. Um, each individual cabin is, uh, or each person is in charge of setting up their own electricity, water, sewer, building kind of situation. Um, and then when my family lived out there, there was only 14 people that lived out there year round. So oh. um, my parents uh, owned a small tourism company as well. Um, and then when I was 11, my dad, who was very busy and trying to put up with an 11 year old, just like basically gave me a skiff. Like it was a beautiful, like 16 foot crest liner like skiff with like a 20 horse on the back and was like, this is for you for your birthday. If you ever want to go to town again, you got to bring yourself because I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> nice. Nice. So that was pretty fun. There's kind of a narrative around growing up in a rural community that if you go out into the real world, you might be, you know, too naive or you grew up sheltered. And I, I found that's not necessarily true in a lot of Alaska communities. Mm. I mean, it can be true, but there's a yeah. lot of opportunities that come with that for you know, the development of grit or independence or, or self-confidence. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, maybe the skills that, uh, that you learned growing up in an area that people might not expect them to be developed? Yeah, I think that, um, so for me, like, especially now, um, like looking back on my childhood, I definitely, man, I didn't even know it at the time, but I was expected to, um, like you said, have grit and have independence. And there was a lot expected of me at a young age that I didn't know was any different. So it was just completely normal. You had to be part of the family. You had to make the small business work. You had to make the remote living work. And you were a person who was able-bodied, who was able to work. And even as, you know, a six-year-old, you were expected to do things and um, hold your own weight. And that does not mean that I wasn't a kid at any point, but you definitely, you know, like it was all for one <laughs> out on the island. Um Having gone off to college uh, in the big city of Fairbanks, Alaska, um, I, uh, I I got there and I didn't particularly uh, see, like I didn't get a lot of people's jokes, you know, for a while. And I, I don't, I do think that I was naive, but I realized, like I think after my freshman year, like even second semester that I just didn't really care. I didn't really care that I was a little bit different. Like, I was just like, you know, it just doesn't matter at the end of the day. I think they're, they're inside jokes of the things that I don't get. That's okay. And I just ended up being more independent and finding people who, I mean, Fairbanks actually attracts a lot of people not from Alaska. And so, and, and there's people who come to Alaska from all over looking for, an independent lifestyle, um, looking to get independence and grit. And I latched on to those people um, and the people who are interested in being outside or being independent and didn't have to be like everyone else. And um, naturally, that was my fit in college. And I didn't 
really take the time to worry about not fitting in, you know, or being a little naive. It was, but I think that to your point, that was only because I had been taught self-confidence and independence mm-hmm. at a young age. Yeah. And that's, that's something that can really be, it has to be experienced. You don't just, uh, Hey, be confident. You have to do things. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. if you do feel behind or out of, out of sorts when it comes to style and whatnot, you know, style isn't it, not necessarily a reflection of who you are. That's just like the clothes you wear and the hair, your style and this and that. But that true yeah. independence is, is something that's within. And it's when you have those hardworking type, uh, attributes, then man, that's, that's, that's something that's sadly lacking, I think, in a lot of uh, areas, and we, we're seeing it manifest itself in a lot of people who don't have the confidence to pursue things that they would really, you know, that would make them happy. I 100% agree, you know, and I think that um, I think that there's a lot of fear of failure, and it's, it's sad that I think that we've ended up in a society where that is what's holding a lot of people back, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest with you, um, but... Yeah, so you are a teacher, right? Yeah. So yeah. what what do you teach? Do you, it's a lot of really interesting introspection that you've put on just kind of uh, – I've listened to a couple of your podcasts um, over the last couple of days, um, and I'm interested to know what you teach. I read your About page, but it just says that you are a teacher. Yeah. Oh, uh, I teach high school English and journalism. Okay. And okay. Uh, I think – it's, it's kind of an interesting question when you ask what I teach because in the last couple of years, you know, five, over your entire teaching career, you, you become aware of people who criticize the profession because, you know, once you get tenured, you just kind of hang out and do nothing. Um, mm-hmm. Also, the criticism that the American school system is putting out, you know, this old model of factory worker type person. Uh, rather than, you know, people who are ready for the real world and, and, you know, can be diverse and whatnot. And so I've, I've read a lot more books about entrepreneurship and through the podcast, I've met some great people and have been asking them questions about, you know, some of these common traits and these things. And so I try to incorporate much more meaningful type things. So it's no, knowing that no one's going to ever ask them to explain symbolism from Lord of the Flies, like read the book, do the assignment, of course, but, um, (laughs) you know, what's going to really help the kids. And so, help connect yeah. to them and have having conversations about entrepreneurship and having conversations about, you know, what skill are you working on by doing your work? You hate English. Um, you're not good at it, but is that because you don't try? So if you don't like it and you don't try, how does that end up working out if you want to be an electrician or if the, if you want to be an entrepreneur? Like, how does that benefit you going forward? And and so I've really, it's, it's been great to talk to people like yourself that, that have, a different perspective that's very instructive for me as a teacher. So I'm not just trying to, you know, read for the rest of your life, read books for fun, and then huh. give yourself essays. So yeah, that's so fascinating. I love it. Like I, I like that um, you're working with kids and trying to make them think about it from a little bit different perspective. That's just so fascinating. Cool. It, it seems pretty obvious. I mean, it's 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 amazing that uh, I don't. Know, I think it's. Ketchikan is a place and, you know, Alaska in general is a place that lends itself a lot more to that because kids can see those different opportunities. It's a lot closer. Yeah. You know, they see tourism That's ministry cool. by the time they graduated high school, they've worked probably something in the tourism ministry. They've, they've cut fish or they've given kayak tours or they've doing, done things like that. And they can see different ec- economic or entrepreneurial op- opportunities. And so why wouldn't you talk about it? You know, why can't you, you know, make things a little bit more relevant to them? So, 
uh, developing those skills really important so they can come back if they want to after college or they can yeah. stay here and contribute rather than feel stuck right. here and and that's a that's a big thing no matter what community even you know juno and ketchikan are a yeah. lot bigger than some of the real communities but that idea of contributing and what skills do you need to contribute yeah that's so smart and i think that there's a big mental difference too but <laughs> between uh i get the question a lot on my tours like well have you lived anywhere else mm. and it's like right yeah definitely um we i have and i think that it's a choice to come back and that rather than feeling stuck you decide to contribute and to try i mean i don't know if anything i'm doing yet is actually making a difference for the better but it's in my I'm on my mind and trying to you know figure out how to help whatever way i can to continue to make juno um you know a decent place to live like i enjoy living here so yeah. I, I would like that to stay that way. <laughs> so when you were 22 and just starting this up, first of all, what, what uh, degree did you get at the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks? I have a human communications degree okay. and then with a minor in small business management. Perfect. I, I've told, yeah. that's another education thing when we talked about kids, uh, what they want to do is, you know, four years college, that can be great for some people. But, you know, if you want to run a business, you can go to a two-year school, get an AA in business yep. or marketing. So at least you have some sort of, you know, background education, fill in some of those gaps. Um, but so, so you're 22 years old and you're starting off this business. There had to have been moments where you're thinking, wait, do I actually want to be back in Juneau? And here's this big business. Uh, all of a sudden I'm, I'm adulting or anything like that was there was there any hesitation or moments where you thought that maybe this wasn't the right choice um so honestly i think college for me jeff like it was uh it was a chance for me to go out and try a different way of living <laughs> to be honest with you like it uh i did just fine in college like it's like got good grades did the whole thing but it Honestly, um, I think I found more value in college and listening to people around me and where they came from and what they wanted to do with their lives and what they were going to be when they grew up. And throughout college, like I was constantly thinking, well, what am I going to do next? And what am I going to do? And where am I going to go? And what am I going to be? And I realized that I just had so much value sitting right in Juno with connections. And I, I kind of just thought that and, and a lot of my classmates were going off to move to different places to pursue communication jobs, mostly media um, or marketing um, in other states. And they were doing job interviews. And I just thought that didn't sound like any amount of fun. I just I didn't want to do the job interview thing. I I um, I didn't want to go fight for a job with lots of other people. Um, I had worked for the college for a while, um, I realized that I was the type of person that got bored sitting behind a desk. Like I, and when I'm bored, I'm not like a good bored person. Like I become <laughs> <laughs> like, I become anxious and not happy and want to be outside and wishing I was someplace else. And I like realized all this in college, you know, and for me, I was like, you know what? I think I just need to go home and I need to run a business and I need to, for, I, I didn't know what that meant. You know, at 22, I was like, I know how to drive a boat. And I think I can, uh, I said, I'll be honest and I'll treat people right. And 
I'll just see where we can go and see if I can make any sort of money and make my boat payments and, and I'll just go from there. You know, <laughs> I didn't, there's so much, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no clue what was involved in running a business, but I was like, I'm going to run a boat, treat people right and show people whales. And that's what I'm going to do. And nice. it, it has definitely, like, I've been so lucky and fortunate and, and I mean lucky to my core because I think that so much of entrepreneurial shit, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. And if I hadn't been some sort of lucky, there would have been a bad situation that could have happened that I wouldn't have known how to dealt with. But for some reason, I've been able to have little things happen to help me learn. And then when the big catastrophe happens, <laughs> I've already learned how to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you were a couple of years, how many years in were you uh, when COVID hit? Uh, so we um, had had, okay, so our first summer season was in 2016. So we had completed 2019. So I guess it was year four. Okay. Summer. And do you yeah. get most of your bookings uh, independently or through the cruise ships? All um, Through the cruise ships. We do have um, a significant number of independent travelers. But with that said, Juno just as a whole doesn't get a lot. Mm -hmm. So about 95% of our travelers do come through cruise ships. And so, um, yeah, we had had our first successful season with employees and a second boat. And we're starting to get some traction. And then and then in 2020, um, yeah, uh, the world the world shut down for a little bit. <laughs> so that was that was interesting. Yeah, it was. Um... Yeah, it's so interesting. I have some friends who are entrepreneurs and talking with other people and that idea of expansion. And some people say, well, if you're going to, it's, it's best to go all in first, because if you do that, then you don't have to worry about being stressed. And then your upgrade ends up being super, super expensive. So just get after it. And other people are like, no, 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 go with more of a small incremental sort of uh, increase so that you don't uh, overweigh or overextend yourself. But it kind of depends yeah. on on, on what, what you're doing. Um, yeah. how, did this make you rethink the model or anything going forward, make you more cautious going forward, or did you have a solid enough business plan to where you could kind of fight through this? We had a very cautious business plan. Um, I definitely did not take anything that we had for granted. And, um, and it's, it goes against like basically how everyone else in the, in the whale watching industry right now in Juno is operating. I mean, as far as the business goes on the day to day in Juno on any given summer day, there are more people consistently that want to go whale watching than any boat, no, no matter if we ran all hours of daylight could, could literally run. We all all the boats in Juno cannot carry all the people that want to go whale watching on the day to day. Like, and so, um, a lot of business models are to grow and to extend yourself and, and then hope for, you know, the next year to be even bigger. Um, we, I got into business, not ever expecting that to ever be my business plan. Um, it was, um, I think that sustainable, uh, in the business model is what, I was more going for us. So anyway, long story short, in 2019, we were able to, um, I didn't pay myself for the first 
several years of business um, and we were rolling income back into the business and we had allocated enough to buy the second boat and not have to take out another loan. We were still paying the loan on the first boat, but we bought the second one outright. And so by the time 2020 hit, long story short, um, we had everyone's deposits. We had everyone's money. Um, we were probably about 80% booked in February of 2020. And then we had everyone refunded and canceled by June of 2020. Every single pre-booking that we had had in February. Um, But we were fortunate in that we had the money. We didn't use it. So it was just whatever people had paid, we we sent it back. Hmm. And so it was um, more for us. It was just a lot of work. I'm literally the only person in the office. I do all the paperwork, I do all the reservations, I do all the refunds. And so for me, it was months of keeping straight paperwork, sending everyone the correct amount of money, making sure everyone was taken care of, and then crossing that off our list. Because it was important to me that people knew that they could trust me to take care of them in return. Mm -hmm. And what's really, really phenomenal is that now, two years later, people are, those same people have come and found us again and have come out with us. And it's a huge number of them that have found us and trusted us again, you know, and it means a lot to me that they, they found us again and that they, they completed the journey. They came whale watching. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. That's such a, a a difficult thing. Or when, when some of my students are talking about uh, running a, like a charter boat or something and think, Hey, yeah, it's, People want to fish and they want to go out with charter yeah. boats, but you just got to be careful about, you know, your investment in your future and you're putting down, you know, $250,000 on this really, really nice charter boat. But, yeah. you know, owning the boat outright and being able to go through these ebbs and flows, you know, what if, what happens if, uh, if the fishing declines a little bit, what happens if you don't get, what happens if you blow up a motor or stuff like that? Like those sort of contingencies right. and being able to think that's yep. such a stressful part of it. But, um, yeah, that's that's the attitude I think that you have. That's that's a great one. Um, that's so important. That's how you get recommendations. That's how people end up uh, coming back to you and recommending other people to go out with you. We've been really fortunate with that, and we've been lucky enough to just basically be all word of mouth, which I love it. I love it when people can talk about their honest experience and pass it on to their family, and then that way they're not getting this like souped up version, you know, it's like, this is actually how it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the experience. Um, it is interesting to the point of your students, uh, to anyone starting a charter boat company or a boating company. Uh, I, I still recommend it. It is, uh, it is a high cost industry to get into. That is for darn sure. <laughs> yeah. It, it will change your perspective, anyone's perspective on what a lot of money is for maintenance just to keep your boat running. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so what about, what about marketing? You mentioned word of the mouth, word of mouth being really important. And, you know, if you get contracts or you're in with the cruise ships, that's important. But uh, how have you done the online marketing or, or dealt with that? You know, there's people who talk about content, 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 and they're just throwing out nonstop stuff. Um, but other people like, I just want to do the thing, you know, I don't, I don't want to have to spend a whole lot of time on Instagram, liking and following and commenting and adding more stuff. So where do you fall on the necessity of online free marketing and social media versus, you know, not. 
Yeah. Um, so uh, just very quickly, small clarification. Uh, we don't have any cruise ship contracts. Okay. So we run completely independently of the cruise ships. So um, in, and I, I kind of take a little bit of pride <laughs> in that fact. Um, so uh, we, um, a lot of companies here in Juno do have cruise ship contracts. And that is, I think, probably the best way to make money um, off of the cruise ships is they get pretty well funneled to your company if you have a cruise ship contract. Um, we are independent, so we're constantly fighting against the cruise ship companies because they don't make any money off of us. Right. Telling our passengers that they will be late, they won't make it back to their cruise ship on time, they're uh-huh. not going with the reputable vendor. Like it is, <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily uh, a fair game out there. Like they have these people at their beck and call and they're telling them this all the time on the cruise ship. So um, we are fighting against that. Um, so word of mouth forums like, um, or where people can write reviews on TripAdvisor or Google or even our Facebook page does help because if people have that fear, they can go and look at honest reviews of the business and see that, okay, well, all these people got back on time, so I should be okay, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So um, as far as social media goes, um, I love and hate it. Um, it you're right, it is. Um, and, and the only reason I hate it is because it is, um, it is a certain amount of time consuming. I mean, it's, it takes effort every day to post something, come up with new content and to do it. Um, the other part of me loves it. I actually um, wanted to go into uh, photojournalism and photography in college. Um, and I um, was lucky enough to be, um, I guess, I, I was in a couple books and stuff in, in high school and um and for because of my wildlife photography and so that was really just wonderful and i was really pumped to go do that um and and actually i mean that's what i had planned on doing and then i had really wonderful mentors that really had my interest in at heart and they just said you know jaylene it's not what it used to be uh there's hardly any staff photographers or journalists anymore and it's really hard to make a living and they said, I think that you should find something else to do. <laughs> and which is good. You know, it's good to hear that from someone who knows what they're talking about. And so I, I find that social media and is a way for me to still take my photographs and to still feel like a photojournalist. And it supports my business as a whole. Um, so they, they kind of help each other out you know my my both of my hobbies and passions work for each other yeah i kind of saw i got a degree in journalism and i saw that my second semester senior year when i was covering the men's basketball team and i'm at the ncaa tournament i'm looking around at these journalists who have you know over the 25 or 30 year career they've finally gotten to this point where they are the ones you know that are that are doing the the big show but when you start and it was at the beginning of, you know, when you, you make a name for yourself, not necessarily by yeah. writing good stories, but you make it because of a, of your personality or your hot takes or your yeah. you know, yelling or the, and so it's not real substance. And I thought, man, I, I don't know if I really want to do that. I don't know if I have the stomach for it or even like the confidence yeah. to just 
do that showmanship type stuff. So it's really nice right. being a freelance writer on the side and photographing on the side because I really enjoy it and yeah. I'm not dependent upon, or that's not what I'm dependent upon to make the money. So that's cool that you were able to find that as a, an outlet where it can be just kind of sheer joy and, and help something yes. else out. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Like what you just said, it took a lot of the stress off of my photography. <laughs> yeah. what, what kind of camera do you have? Right now I'm shooting a Sony a seven So it's kind of on the lower end of their professional line for mirrorless. Um, and, but it's a full frame. Um, and I switched to Sony back in 2018. Before that, I shot uh, Canon pretty exclusively. Mm. So all my shots that are still in the books were all shot with Canon. Yeah. When people get on your boat for the tour, are some of them, you know, the rocking iPhones? You think, ah, oh, dang it, that's too bad. I'll send you some pictures. Or, you know, are they really equipped with, you know, mega telephoto lenses? What is it like when you're kind of judging the people, well, not judging, but you're gauging their yeah. photography level when they're getting on the boat? I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm I with them. To be completely honest with you, Jeff, like I don't travel with a big camera because it's a pain it's a pain now, you know? Like everything's going carry-on. Everything's so much heavier than it used to be. Like, so when I travel, I carry an iPhone. So I, there's no judgment when people are getting on. Like I just, I feel like you're <laughs> like, they're going on one tour with wildlife, you know? Uh, so I actually, I bring my camera and if I'm not pulling my hair out busy with the business and we got, and I got some good shots for the day, I'll say, Hey, I'll post your photos on my Facebook and my Instagram and it'll say the tour time and date. And it'll be, I guarantee it'll be photos from your tour. Nice. And so I try to do that as often as I can, mostly just because I, I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love offering that. Um, but when I started doing it, so, uh, but when I'm busy, I've noticed that even like with my iPhone 8, because of what I know about photography and whale behavior, that even with my phone, all my reels and all my videos come from my phone. Mm. And I can get pretty good footage just with my phone because I know when things will happen or can anticipate a little bit better. And so what I've started doing is even just airdropping people during the tour. I'll be like, hey, I got some good video. I'll airdrop you my content. Nice. And and I like being able to help people out that way. Like I think that a, a photograph is so valuable. And whenever I can, like I, I try to help out. Um, but even if like people have questions about camera settings or even iPhone settings or, or are, if I hear I'm getting frustrated about not being able to get a shot, even if I can't, because of everything I have going on, can't shoot, I'll still offer whatever tips I can. Yeah. It, it doesn't take, take much when the boat's rocking just a little bit. All of a sudden you're just taking close up pictures of the top of waves and you're totally missing yeah. everything. You try to zoom in Absolutely. and you got sky <laughs> and then you got herring. You got no, no whale. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's the comment I hear, you know, can you just stop the boat? Like everyone's <laughs> kidding, of course, but yeah. can you just stop the boat rolling for just a minute? <laughs> yeah. Do you get uh, people on there that might not understand, or is this maybe even part of your introductory spiel about uh, what the regulations are regarding how close you can get to whales? Do you get the uh, pushback, blowback, understanding, or, hey, can we get closer? Yeah, I mean, like, it's a it's a general question, but um, 
but it doesn't happen real often. And I think that it mostly comes out of just mostly curiosity uh, for a lot of our guests. Um, I think that my goal and what I try to do with our advertising on social media and even with our website is try to explain what is to be expected and what's not and say, I, I say it pretty regularly that, you know, we adhere to the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which is 100 yards. We can't not approach a humpback whale or a marine mammal closer than 100 yards. But if they come closer to us, that's totally okay. And so if people book with me, since they talk to me directly, if they have that question over email or even phone, like, I'm 100% upfront with them from the get-go. And so on... By the time they get on my tours, most people have done that research or talked to me about it already, so they know. Mm-hmm. And um, they know that I don't have any interest on in trying to get pushing that at all. You know, if we're hanging out and staying still and a whale comes closer to us, like that's rare and lucky and fortunate, but it's not something that I push. And so when people ask that question on the tours, like, I love it and I and I decide to take it more as a, a curiosity question rather than a, I wish we could get closer, if yeah. that makes sense. Right. How many whales do you typically see when you go out? I'm assuming that during the summer, that's not very difficult to find them. You know, it's kind of interesting. So we run the beginning of May through the end of September and um, it we've always been able to find at least one whale. Um, but sometimes it is just one, um, especially earlier in the year. Um, in May, a lot of our whales, even though there's usually a few around, um, they're doing longer dives here in the Juneau area. I think just trying to start to eat as much food as they can after coming back from migration, mm-hmm. so spending more time under the surface feeding. Um, so, uh, usually, um, it's like two or three on average, but you know, sometimes it's more and sometimes we just see one. Do you typically see some of the same ones? I know the, the underside of the, of the tail can yeah. kind of be indicators of this is a specific whale. And, and do you, if you see them over and over again, to start to kind of get an idea or feel for the, the personality or character of the whale? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Totally. Total whale nerd <laughs> over here. Um, yeah, really, uh, so uh, one of the whales that we call Sasha that um, has a pretty distinct tail. I mean, I would say over 50% white and then is um, mostly uh, ID'd off of on the left side of her fluke. She has an A and a K scratched into the left side of her fluke. And no one did that to her. She was just born that way mm. with the A and the K. And so it's actually, you know, Alaska. Yeah. So we... But so that whale used to hang out in front of my house on Shelter Island when I was growing up. And so I, I think that I have 18 years worth of photos of her, um, year after year. And so it's been really fun to watch her. Um, and then as she's gotten older, how she's moved around to different areas. Um, yeah. And, and to kind of literally grow up with her was cool. And then flame, uh, is another whale that is kind of like our superstar she loves to show her tail which sounds naughty but it's (laughs) it's not not they don't all like to fluke they don't all it's like a 
it's a preference thing. They don't have to show a flute to dive. And mm-hmm. so Flame likes to get that extra momentum to go down. And she does a really beautiful uh, tail, which is mostly white. Um, and so when I was younger, I remember Scrutineer, which was Flame's mom, come over and visit Flame. And they would hang out together for a little while. And then she would go back to Glacier Bay, where she spends most of her summer. And Flame would stay here. And so now Scrutineer doesn't come over anymore. We haven't seen her in years, but Flame is still here with her calves year after year. So it's interesting to see the progression and how their behavior changes a little bit, you know, from year to year. But we've we've had a lot of um, local whales here that I'm happy they've been wanting to come back year mm-hmm. after year. Do you get to name them if you uh, have a relationship with them? Like, does everybody call them that? Is there a registry of whales that are in the area? Yeah. So um, there is a registry of, of sorts, I guess. Um, so uh, locally here we have the Juno Flukes program, um, which is run by Susie Tierling, who now also operates Whale Sense here for the Alaska sector. Um, and then so... There's our local whales around the Juno area are um, located in Juno flukes, um, but and they have a website as well. Um, but more recently, over the last few years, that a larger catalog has started to become uh, or has gained traction. Um, it's called HappyWhale.com, and it was created by Ted Cheeseman down in California, um, and he basically came up with. Um, a network of individuals who um, volunteer to ID whale um, tails around the world. And then um, it's become this giant catalog. And it's a really fun resource for citizen science because now anyone from around the world, even if you're just on a whale watching tour for one day in Juneau, if you get a good photo, you can turn in your photo to Happy Whale. It will have someone analyze the tail, shoot back to you which whale it is, and then send you the profile of it, which is neat. And then whatever marine biologist um, has subscribed to that website, they'll also get notified. So it helps researchers track the whales to figure out what they were doing and where they were. And it also helps individuals become more familiar with the whales around the world. Excellent. That's, uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And so, oh, in regards to your actual question about the names, um, so it's become a little bit harder to name a whale. Back in the day, like when before all the high tech stuff, if you were the first person to take a picture of the underside of a whale and it wasn't named anywhere else, then you could name it, you could turn it in, and it was all <laughs> hunky dory. But well, the problem that you ran into was that the different research catalogs weren't communicating well together. And so like whales would end up with different names in different mm-hmm. areas of the world. <laughs> and then it's been a struggle to combine those different profiles and names and guarantee that it was the same whale. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so it's gotten a little bit harder to name whales, especially calves. Um, but it's still possible. You just have to get a lot more like okay from the marine biologists and the catalogs <laughs> before yeah. you can do it. <laughs> hmm. So, what do you do during the uh, winter now that uh, bookings are or you know, the season's over? Um, yeah. I'm sure you're doing a lot of paperwork and stuff, that office stuff that uh, yeah. behind the scenes that you don't necessarily uh, like. Um, but uh, what, what does Juno look like for you during the winter? 
I, so in the past when the business was still kind of getting its feet under it, um, I've done a bunch of odd jobs. I've worked a bunch of different stuff, secretary, waitress, lifeguard, um, dog walker, lots of different things. Now that the business, um, had a good year, uh, this year, um, I think I will just be keeping it to, um, reservations, um, boat maintenance. And then I realized that, um, it's good to take some downtime. Um, and then also whatever changes, whatever improvements I want to make on the business need to happen in the winter, because in the summer, I just don't have time to implement those changes. And so, um, you know, we're thinking about just becoming a little bit more streamlined. So, you know, employee handbook and, um, maybe changing our, you know, direction with our social media and that type of stuff. But those changes need to be thought out and like done before mm-hmm. May. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. What about for recreation entertainment? Do you, are you a skier, a uh, fat tire bike person? Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you do for fun? Yeah. Um, so I do a fair amount of hunting, usually with my dad or my uncles in the winter, um, mostly just for deer around Juno, um, unless someone else has a big trip plan that I can invite myself on. <laughs> um, and then my husband and I actually travel. Um, I We try to get out, um, go visit some of his family, and then pick uh, a place that has cheap airfare and just get out of Juno for a while. Um, and then uh, cross-country skier, not a downhill skier, but, and then a dog walker. <laughs> nice. But, yeah, just taking it pretty chill in the winter, yeah. That's yeah, a lot of fun. the The fall season, I like September and October quite a bit, just because you got the kind of the release of. There's hardly any boats. Every once in a while, there might yeah. be a boat until it finally ends, and then you just kind of get everything back. But there's still time before it gets cold and wintry, so you can have these nice yeah. days. There's still there's still some warmth, and it's sunny, and you can do some outdoor recreating before it becomes kind of snow yeah. slush ice season. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know once that sets in, <laughs> it can be a while before you're going to want to hang out outside for a long period of time. <laughs> yeah, just that grayness. And and you guys get a lot more snow up there than we do down here in Ketchikan. So we get this, we'll have slush yeah. and we'll have that. And if, when I used to coach basketball, I'd go up to Juno and it'd be icy and snowy and come down to Ketchikan and it would you know just be rainy and and kind of gross and cold 38 degrees you're like man this is this is rough i could use some tucson right now or something you guys are tough down there judo starts to get one or two days of slush and we're all whiners (laughs) (laughs) well you would think that we wouldn't whine about it because we're so used to it but yeah there's a lot of whining going around about the rain and and the darkness and whatnot so i don't know (laughs) but if you uh i've noticed though that Alaskans, and I love this, don't get me wrong, this is a compliment to the state, but uh, I feel like we find a way to put, like, whining into regular conversation. Yeah. And it can be about the rain or it can be about how hot it was last week and you didn't have any time to do anything inside because the sun was out for too long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's not not true malcontent. It's just, uh, you know negative observations 
Yes. And it's not like no one takes it as whining or complaining. You're just like, you're right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I <Yep>. feel it. <laughs> yeah. The, the interior Alaska, and you got this when you were up there going to school, it's so dark and so cold. And even if it is sunny, yeah. there's absolutely zero warmth behind it. And that was, oh yeah. I, I don't know. I did a caribou hunt up there in March and it was still, still so cold, negative 30 degrees. Yeah. But you know, March down here is when it's starting to, we're breaking free and, you know, we might start getting some, some growth and some of the leaves starting to come out or blossoms maybe toward the end of the month. But up there, you're just locked in for so long. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then, yeah, I, I, up in Fairbanks, I, I felt, I started to feel like the like claustrophobia of winter in March when I felt like it should start getting warmer and better. And it just really didn't start right. until beginning of May, which was hard for this Southeast Alaska girl who is used to warm weather or yeah. warmer weather <laughs> by that time. Yeah. yeah. It's, but you know, everyone, uh, there's different levels of misery. And there's, you know, people up there talk about it. Some, some friends up there that say I, I couldn't deal with the, the, with the gray. So yeah, it might be cold, but yeah. at least there's, I can see the blue of the sky and I can see the sun and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. that's that's a good point. And then people down in California are like, well, I don't know how I could deal with anything. And I said, well, I don't know how you still deal with the traffic. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No place is perfect. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the truth? Yeah. yeah. So uh, how can people find you? Um, how can they book? How can I uh, get the little little pitch for the for the business here in closing? Oh yeah. Um. So we have um profiles on facebook and instagram um under jaylene's alaska um or we can be found we have a website you can just google uh small whale watching in Juneau, alaska um or we're under um www.jaylene'salaska.com um and then we're all over we've got a google profile and like i said facebook and instagram so um, you can reach out over email or give us a call or shoot us a text, but we, um, and then, yeah. And I tell this to like everyone, like no pressure to reserve ever. Like if anyone just has questions about, um, coming to Juno or questions about different places in Alaska, I love just kind of sharing a local side of Alaska with people too. Excellent. Thanks a lot for being on here. Appreciate it. Uh, Sounds like you got a great business going on up there and uh, love the attitude and, and good luck with uh, this winter and a good luck hunting before the winter comes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. No problem. Take care.